Georgie? The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Come with me if you want to live. Hello and welcome to Direct to Nowhere, the section of the Road to Nowhere podcast where we invite a guest on to discuss one of their favourite directors and three of their movies that kind of stick out to them. Tonight I'm delighted to be joined by journalist and podcaster sorry, for The Athletic and The Cynic, Kieran Devlin. Hi Kieran, how are you doing? I'm good mate, how are you? Hi, not too bad. Uh, all things considered about what's happening tonight, but we can... <laughs> Just forget about that. Um, so just for everyone that's listening, just a kind of brief introduction to yourself, what you do, kind of interests in, in movies and cinema, just things along those lines. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so i um, been a football journalist for three years now, um, but before that I did sort of freelance, most uh, culture stuff, mostly music, but I wrote some film and TV stuff as well. Cool. Um, and, and books and everything. Then with uh, the cynic stuff, I did that. Um, was my route into um, into doing football journalism, but yeah, still obsessed over films. I miss I miss writing about film and TV and music quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, especially since it allows me to be a bit more flowery and use wanky language a bit more than <laughs> right. in football, where you have to be a bit more um, straight edged. But yeah, so like I think um, with films, I think the big one was like. Uh, well, I guess we've really come to like the the big, you know, everyone has a moment where they realise how into film they are, I guess. So they really, you know, they, they want to dive into the canon or, yeah. or whatever. Um, so I don't know if I'm stepping on the toes of the, the later segment, but um, no, not fine. I did, uh, like, um, I think I was fourteen, and it was the first time I saw Alien, and oh. I just never had a as like visceral response to a film before because. That film, even you're watching now, that film is still fucking insanely tense and stressful. Yeah. And yeah, I've definitely. just never, I never had that response to a film before. And so I think it was like Empire had a list of the 500 best films that were made from 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually quite a good list, whereas I think now they just let readers decide it. But at that time, they like interviewed like filmmakers and um, yeah. critics as well as readers. And it was a really interesting list of like a, a proper canon. Um, so like that summer... I just went on Amazon and bought like three pound, or went into H and V, and you know they used to have like two for two DVDs for a fiver or whatever, like yeah, DVDs for a ten or that sort of thing. Where I just bought the like the the Godfather, Goodfellas, just all like the canon that that, that I could, and I probably that summer because that was between third and fourth year or something, mm-hmm. and I just. I was watching like two films a day. Nice. <laughs> I didn't have any social life. I was just like plowing through them and it just sort of um, stuck from there. Nice. I had a collection of DVDs, maybe about three to 500. Like, I don't know exactly the, the the exact amount, but, and it would be, I would just see a movie once and if I seen it in the cinema, I would buy it as soon as it came out, even if I was quite indifferent to it. So I had a lot of shite. And then like one that my dad would say, my dad would mention that he liked National Lampoons. So I went and bought Animal House, which is great. But also bought um, National Lampoon's 
or oh, graduation day or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, and it was fucking terrible. But I thought, <laughs> why not? Just buy it. Like it's fine. I it's um, aliens a, 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 a kind of long term favorite. I think for especially if you're into your horror and that kind of blend sci fi horror and almost like a <clears throat> like, like a kind of haunted house aesthetic in space. Which is was it kind of interesting take at the time that like you never seen anything like that really before? I think, I think with it as well it was like a proper, you know, it was like a, a, a you know, the first hour is just like blue collar, um, like workers in space, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like just like going about working on the ship and everything, and it just it just sets the tone so well, and it's like so again, it's something you've not, you know, obviously it's a bit different fifty years on now, but it's it's not something you really. You know, looking at the sci-fi before then, that sort of very gritty, um, as I say, sort of blue-collar life isn't something sci-fi tended to look at before. And then mm. that's before going on to, as you say, like the, the combination of horror and sci-fi and everything. Mm. Um, and I was I was reading a really interesting article by the guy who wrote who wrote the Expanse books, where he was talking about uh, Alien, uh, the best, <laughs> an amazing thing. But the the Alien um, is when Ridley Scott has that. Um, the scene, I think it's the first kill the alien was, where it's just a room with chains hanging down and it's leaking. Mm. But it's like, what is the purpose of that in a like a space hauler spaceship? Like, what is that? What's that room for? But you don't yeah. think about it in time because you're so immersed in it. And yeah. I think it's just that's a good point. I've just never thought about because you're so um, yeah entranced by what really Scott has, has made. Mm-hmm. Are you an alien or an aliens man? You can be both, obviously. But is there a, a preference? Uh, alien, I don't alien, know. I, I, I still, still, I think I still just like. I don't know whether it is because you know that sort of like sentimentality about it. It's like that was the film that got into me films, but mm-hmm. um, I think it's still probably in my top ten. Um, ever like I rewatched it a, like a year ago or something, and it's still just fucking incredible. Um, when it was it when they got added to Disney Plus, I rewatched the the Aliens, and it was I think it's the first time I've ever seen the theatrical cut of it. Because usually I've just okay. always seen the director's cut, and yeah. it's genuinely incredible how much like key content and character beats are are cut from the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. Like it's a completely different film. Like it just you really, um, especially around Newt and um, Sigourney Weaver's relationship. Like there's so many key scenes that they just completely cut for the theatrical version. It's bizarre. Right. So in terms of you, so that's a kind of your first sort of cinematic experience you can quite recall, uh, or that gets you into it. Um, do you have a kind of standout favourite moment from cinema that really kind of you go back and watch it, rewatch it since it's since you first seen it or anything like that? Um, yeah. So when you say that along, I've been trying to think, um, and obviously I don't think there's like one favourite. But I think there's, there's one that I always love. Like there's loads and loads of scenes, like the the final um, the battle in Seven Samurai or um, the ending apartment. Um, but I think I think my one that I just always just hits like a chord is it's one of the final scenes in Boyhood. Um, okay. He's another one of my, my one of my favorite directors, Richard Linklater. I just I, I, everything he's done is just incredible. But it's it's when it's just when the the mum is crying about her, the son's going off to college and she just like she just has this really quite poignant moment where she just doesn't like, like is this what life is is this like is is our son's life is passed by she's divorced and she doesn't know what direction his life going in and it's just perfectly executed it just hits like a ton of bricks because like obviously the entire point of that and you can really see it affect the actor's performance is 
like you know what what was it was it 11 years 12 years they yeah, spent- I think it was, uh, so I was just going to ask it was that was the one filmed it's one I've not actually seen yeah. it was filmed over yeah 10 12 years or something yeah. wasn't it with the same actors which is incredible yeah, yeah. and he's doing, he's doing something he's doing something new as well with it's like it's like 15 years or something um but yeah it was just I, I can't, it was just like this incredibly poignant moment that just hits like a ton of bricks every time I, every time I watch it um, just because of the way it builds up the climax of it, but also just how almost understated. It's not. It's not like a big melodramatic moment. Um, it's it's just entirely natural, but it's something we probably all <laughs> pondered at some point. Yeah, is like is this all that life is? And you know, say that it's like just it's, it's like a real moment of vulnerability. And I absolutely, yeah, I just think it's one of my favorite scenes in, in cinema. And I think it, it doesn't. There's you know, there's a lot of like big moments from the last decade, but I think. That that scene doesn't get talked about enough, and then Boyhood is definitely in my my top ten films mm. as well. Absolutely adore it. Right, so uh, I definitely need to check it out. It's one likely there's a bit of a blind spot for me. Um, I've watched uh, the first before movie, mm. but I've never yeah. seen the other two. Um, we actually done an episode covering Scanner Darkly on the kind of main feed, and I really liked that. My the, the guy I was recording with is not a fan of it at all. I've, is he obviously with Boyhood? If that's in your top ten, then obviously you would recommend watching his stuff. And what it's quite a lot of slow burning things, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's there's he's got stuff that is just like really. Well, I guess the big ones are like slacker comedies, and well, the one called Slacker and Days and Confused, and everybody wants some. But I just I think they're you know they're, they're funny, but they're really warm, and the characters are really well done. And there's just they're such easy watching. Even the one they got on Netflix a, a couple of months ago, I can't remember what it's called. Um, oh, is that, oh, uh, that? the? Uh, it's it's again animated, kind of similar to Scanner that way, yeah. isn't it? And it's yeah, about it's, moon. Is it is about an astronaut or something? Yeah, but it's just like a, a like a kid near the. I think it's Houston, and it's just like like it's a combination of like flight of fancy and just what he's best at, which is the very specific moments that are funny and tender and embarrassing and they like just all these little. He's just got such a a way of getting like scenes from real life they just feel quite natural and quite quite funny when mm-hmm. you know that's um i think it was, it was the way like the, the, the way they saved money was oh, i can't even remember i mean i'll just ramble on about it but, like, <laughs> I, just, I just i just I, like um he's got those and then he's got the before trilogy which again mm. <laughs> i don't just like look, put together my top 10 but they, they, they may be in there as well but like I, i'm i do the really wanky thing and like group them together <laughs> as a as a trilogy rather than like saying which one um it's the same thing I do, like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, and I think they're they're incredible, and Bollywood is incredible for like maybe a different reason too. Those um, those slacker uh, comedies, which are just really easy to watch, easy mm-hmm. to watch, and yeah. really fun. And I think he, he does everything quite well. Yeah, when you're saying about putting the trilogies in together, Lord of the Rings is a, a huge part of my life. Like, um, I had a, a big connection with. It. I mean, the first one would have been out. Was it two thousand and one? So yeah. I would have been fourteen. Um, and I've got like Elvis writing on my wrist and things like that because I'm a geek. But um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's fine to have your. You can have your favourites, but if you just love the trilogies so much, then mm. there's no point trying to pick because you stick them on and you can watch. I mean, I watch the, the Lord of the Rings probably once a year, and I'll try my best to watch the director's cut. I don't have them on the, the kind of recently released um, 4K. I'd love to see that. Mm. Um, but it's ones that I can. It's like a, a Sunday movie. Like I'll yeah. stick on for me personally, my personal favourite is Two Towers. But 
I watched the four hour cut or three and a half hour cut of Lord of the eh, Lord of the Rings, eh, Return of the King. And as you're saying for the before trilogy, it's definitely something I want to check out. As I said, I, I really like the first one. I can't remember the, the exact is that before sunrise? Yeah. Yeah. When uh, Vienna. Aye. Yeah. And um I, I definitely do want to check him out a bit more like later. It's just been a a bit of blind spot, like I've had a few like the second episode of this a blind spot, another blind spot of mine, which I probably will keep from apart from the three movies that I had to watch for that episode was Lars von Trier, yeah, and that was quite grim. Like <laughs> um, I got, I did actually enjoy them. Like we watched um, Antichrist, The House That Jack Built, and Nymphomaniac one and two. We just kind of banded that together as one mm. movie, and I mean, I don't know if you've seen much of Lars von Trier or if you've seen Jack or if you've seen Antichrist or I mean Nymphomaniac it's just it's just it's borders on porn and I had a <laughs> in fact I mean there's, there is full sex in it and they hired porn actors to do it and I had a discussion about um, what is the, the line between artistic cinema and porno, eh, pornography mm-hmm. and there's, there is a few kind of directors like that like as I said the link later um, and, and von Trier Um is there anything, so before we go into your directors, is there a moment maybe that kind of elicits, what's the best way to put it, like an emotional response like you're talking about, Boyhood? Is that the part that, is that the movie that you watch and it sets you off? Is that the one? Um, it might not, sorry, I, I should probably uh, clarify that. It doesn't necessarily need to be um, emotional in terms of you're bawling your eyes out. It could be anger, it could be laughter, it could be anything. I think I think the the... The big one for that, that I always just, I get like the biggest emotional response I have is to Pride, um, the film about the, um, during the mining strike when uh, LGBTQ um, society in London went up to help them. And uh, and and it's it's an incredible film. And um, just the sense of like solidarity between two very sort of vilified groups um, Mm -hmm. under, under Thatcher's Britain. Um, it's just really funny, really heartwarming, um, devastating, mm. right? Really enrich. It's just like it's every emotion uh, under the sun, basically. And but it's just really well acted, very well written. Just that is, you know, it's it's in a way it uh, fits into that that sort of tradition of British films, like um, you know, like the Full Monty or mm-hmm. Brassed Off, those types of proper like examinations of working class Britain, mm-hmm. where the the ideas. How the the strength of local community or these like local groups can bat, band together against um, and and survive that way. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it's just uh, it's just it's a beautiful beautiful film. So I'd highly recommend yeah. go see it. The, the, the end the end of that. Um, there's 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 the, the final like five minutes. I'm just a complete wreck. Just like f- falling off the sofa in complete floods of tears. Um, <laughs> Twelve different reasons. <laughs> Mine's is a bit less nuanced than that. See the thumb in Terminator Two always gets me. Terminator Two was a movie I was brought up with, and it's why I've kind of a, a big Arnie fan. Like I was, um, I would be told by my mum and dad, you can't watch this Arnie movie. You can't watch Terminator. You can't watch Terminator Two. You can't watch Predator. So I would then turn around and say, "All right, so I'll go and state my." Grand and granddad's in. and my granddad would send me up in the loft, and he'd put the channel on for me. And it was always Terminator Two used to always be on BBC Two, mm. and um, even when I was young, I remember. I think it's just because I wanted a robot, I wanted a Terminator as my own toy, and then just that thumb. And then more recently, Endgame just got me like fully, and I, I'm a 
massive mark for the MCU. So that was been there since it kind of started. So the director or directors you've chosen um, is the Coen brothers. Um, what's your kind of relationship with their movies, apart from the movies that we've picked? Have they always kind of spoke to you? Have they always been a favourite first watches or are they maybe ones that you've kind of like grown to love over time? Um, I think, so when I mentioned earlier, like when I had that big summer of just watching loads and loads of films, there was quite a few of Coen Brothers in there, the likes of um, Fargo, which we're going to come on to talk about. Everyone talks about The Big Lebowski, um, No Country for Old Men. Um, mm-hmm. There's a few other big ones. I do think I I just loved the, the sense of humour the, the the weirdness that they they inject into it, the sort of like um the like the nihilism the way the way that sort of the philosophy that that goes through it I think there's you know I think I've read I read a book about it which I think correctly I read a book about their their work I think it was one of the I, mean, I think it was one of the former Empire journalists Phil Desemlin maybe oh he's the aye um, um, sorry I'm, I've taken a blank sorry I interrupt I interrupted there um, Phil is uh, yeah, I think he's freelance now. Nick is now the editor. His brother, his, yeah. his younger brother's yeah. the editor. Sorry, that was my fault. Yeah. I, I, I've got myself mixed up. Um, <laughs> I think it was him who wrote a book about the 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 coins, and his intro um, had you know captures the one line in the entire the entire body of work that sums the book quite well, which is the ending of Burn After Reading. Um, when J.K. Simmons just just um, asks, he's the CIA director, and he's asking one of his little minions, "Is it? Have we learned anything? I don't think we have." <laughs> Which is just like captures the the coins entire thing because they're trying to like you know put down an idea of theme or point or underlying significance to their films is a bit. It's always a bit of a red herring because there's like you can you know we're going to talk well. I think there's a bit of Beth Miller's crossing as well, which we could come come on to, and with Fargo and mm-hmm. even raising Arizona. There's all these things where they sort of um, lure you in with the promise of making a point or sentimentality, and then pull the rug from under you. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you're not invested. Doesn't mean you're not affected by it. And I just love like the cast of like minor characters. Um, I love their. Yeah, I, I don't think I, the only the only film of theirs that I don't. Um, Love and I, 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 I realize a lot of they do have flawed films, but I do think the only one of those I don't love is Ballad, Ballad of uh, Buster Scruggs. Okay, um, even some of the ones that a lot of people don't like, like uh, The Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty, I've got a lot of time for. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I've just, yeah, I think since I was about 14, I've just uh, really, really liked them, mm-hmm. and then about this, this, I think because. Disney obviously bought Fox. A lot of them are now on um, Disney Plus, and it's been just re- revisiting. And I've just yeah, loved falling in love with them all over again. Though I think some of my uh, positioning has changed. I think you know, like as uh, an impressionable fourteen-year-old, if you're told the Big Lebowski is the best, and you you watch it and it's funny, it's like oh yeah, this is definitely the best. But I think they've got um, quite a few more interesting and profound films. I guess the, the three I've chosen for this, I don't think it's necessarily. My three favourite of theirs, but I think mm-hmm. it's the three that I'd, I'd quite ha- have a lot to talk about with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so with me for the cones, I came to them quite late, and uh, the first time I seen um, what's it called, uh, No Country for Old Men, was I really didn't get it, but I've had a rewatch since and I absolutely love it now. But I've known of the Big Lebowski and I've known of Fargo, and I knew the kind of 
the tone that those took. So when I watched No Country for Old Men, it was just a wee bit, I kind of was taken aback by it a bit. But now I absolutely think it's a, a masterpiece and probably, oh, actually, maybe after today, my second favourite film of theirs that I've seen. Um, as I said, I, I came a wee bit late. I do have a bit of love hate. Like, um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I actually quite enjoyed, but I don't know if it was just the time when I watched it. It was quite, um, like a, what's the word, a, a novelty, the way it came onto Netflix and things like that. I'd probably need to give it a rewatch. Like, I really liked, um, the, no, Nick Cave, what's his name? Oh, he plays the miner in it, the gold miner. Oh, Nick Nolte. Is it Nick Nolte? Is it, I thought it was a musician. Who's the musician that's in it? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I know, uh, Christ is not Nick Nolte. Complete blank. It was the inspiration for Heath Ledger's Tom Waits. Yeah, sorry. Yep. And I really enjoyed that kind of scene of it. But it, again, it could be why I watched it once and I had a, a good kind of good time with it. Burn after reading, I really hated. <laughs> and again, though, because it, because I had such a dislike for it, I never went back to it. Mm. So it could be one that if I did rewatch it, I would maybe appreciate it a wee bit more. I think I think it's one of the weaker ones, but I think it has some really good moments, and mm. I think they've got some really good subplots. It's a bit it's a bit too meandering, um, but I think they can do meandering really well. Like I, I rewatched Hail Caesar, um, and okay. I think I, I know people think it's quite slight, but I absolutely love it. I think it's just really funny, really entertaining. Um, yeah. But that sort of similar way where there's no there's, the idea of a plot is very loose. Like it's not like a very which I guess a lot of people um, who aren't big fans of theirs, it might be a criticism they level at quite, quite a lot of their films, is that the, it's not the uh, the tightest plotting. Um, but for, for me personally, I, I lap up. For me, it's all about the, the characters and the, the, the scenes rather than necessarily the, the plot itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of use the, the plot as a mechanism for characters' development, essentially, don't they? Like, It's not about the um, the... The plot is about the characters and how they interact and the, the script and one of their kind of strengths is their script writing. I think their script writing is really good. Um, so I'm going to start on what would be potentially maybe get me cancelled once we come to discuss the actual movie. Um, and we can only go up from here because I'm quite worried about this. Um, Fargo from 1996. Jerry Lindegard. You got the car? You bet. Brand new burnt umber Sierra. You want your own wife kidnapped. Her dad, he's real well off. So why don't you just ask him for the money? <laughs> See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? Uh-huh. Wait, it's Jerry. I don't know what to do. It's my wife. We gotta talk. It's something called geez. It's terrible. Oh, I got the state looking for a Sierra with a tag starting DLR. Sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lil. I think that vehicle there probably had dealer plates. Jeez. DLR? No, they said no cops. Here's the second one. So we got a trooper pull someone over. This a new car then, sir? Oh, it certainly is, officer. Still got that smell. There's a high-speed pursuit. We got a shooting. And then this execution-type deal. Million dollars, a lot of damn money. They got my daughter. Thank you, hon. Brought you some lunch, Margie. What are those, night crawlers? Oh, yeah, look pretty good. How's Gene? Who's Jean? My wife. <laughs> well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. You were having sex with a little fella then. Yeah. Mr. Lundegaard, 
Mind if I sit down? Carrying quite a load here. Where's Jerry? Got your damn money. Now where's my daughter? Jeez. Blood has been shed. We now want the entire 80,000. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here. You have no call to get snippled with me. I'm just doing my job here. <gasps> what do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? Police! So, is there anything else you can tell me about him? He wasn't circumcised. Oh, yeah? Can you give a brief description of Argo? I guess um, you've got Will Mage Macy as in Bunny Troubles, so he gets folk to kidnap his wife and predictably in what is a bit of like a, a cone staple, if you're going to want one of their through lines, is you know you you flick the domino and it, it, it just sets off like a ridiculous series of events, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you know, that's, that's the equivalent of moving one... Um, block from the Jenga uh, tower, and it all everything just comes collapsing down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, and it's, it's you've got um, Francis McDormand obviously as uh, <laughs> um, as the police officer investigating it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the series of crime, well, this very bizarre crime, and I think that's the the thing is just a very strange crime, and it's it's really really dark. Like it's an incredibly in, a, in some ways, it's quite a bleak film, just the way mm-hmm. it, it presents on human nature, and it has like because you know it's just the juxtaposition between these um, quite quite quirky small town. Um, is it Minnesota? Though, yeah, Minnesota. I think it's Fargo, Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, just like the, the way they talk, the path the path they have is just it's almost like childlike. Mm-hmm. And then you've got these really bl- visceral moments of violence and. The, these people that for like ten grand they'll just kill, they'll maim, um, all these horrific, horrific moments. But there's also the the final like contrast is between Francis McDormand and her husband, mm-hmm. whose name I can never remember, but he's like one of the one of the all time great <laughs> character actors. Yeah, I know um, exactly who you mean because I think he was in the uh, Mindhunter as well. Yeah, and Zodiac. And, Zodiac. Um, it was sorry, not Mindhunter. Um, I get those two mixed up. Aye. Um, and um, Shutter Island, he's in mm-hmm. as well. Um, but he's. He's like I think just the relationship is generally just like so sweet and um, wholesome, and the, the way it just plays off against all the other shit going on. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just really powerful as well as very funny and very moving and compelling. Yeah, it's certainly yeah as you're saying it's a kind of Cohen's maybe not a trope, but they've used it a couple of times where a heist gone wrong or a a kidnapping gone wrong. Um, used it in Big Lebowski, which we spoke about a wee bit earlier. Um, so how do you find that, as you're saying, like, are you quite happy with the kind of haphazardness of it all? Where it, it has it has the the um, kind of money MacGuffin that William H. Macy's got his uh, debt that he needs to pay off, who's got a rich father, and he's also got a wife who can be used almost as cannon fodder type of thing. Um do you did you enjoy that part of it overall? Like, is it quite a something that kind of not resonates with you, but um, kind of got your enjoyment? Well, I think it just the the fact that it becomes irrelevant by the end. Like the the, the whole thing where, where um, Christ, I've, I've had an awful time trying to remember folks' names tonight. <laughs> oh, the, when the, 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 there's the running the running gag of what he's um, called the the funny looking fella, um, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is which is great. Yeah. Um, but when, when, like just the fact that he gets the he gets all he gets his money and he hides it, and then he's he's taken away, and the money's never found again. 
Like it just it just it's entirely irrelevant. Like the whole, the whole thing that they do that constantly. The same with the big Lebowski and the money and that. It's just they they just discarded because it. They, you mentioned earlier they have these MacGuffins and then they pull the rug from under you. It's mm-hmm. like well the MacGuffins doesn't really matter. It's because the way it's the way almost always money twists the human relationships in in a way and that's that becomes the focus. Um, and it's it's just this idea of like almost. You know, I think the the Fargo TV series is really good at it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just this idea, you know, this one one bad choice, one selfish choice, one act of uh, unethical um, decision, just like completely <laughs> sets off these chain events, and you just lose focus of why you did it in the first place because you're drowning mm-hmm. in misery and like a very very dark humor, which sort of uh, revolves around it. I, I, it, work, it works for me. I think Fargo, one of the reasons I think I wanted to, I chose this as one of the three of theirs because I do think it maybe is their most typical film in that way. Um, it's maybe not as like some of the, you know, the pure comedy of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Or, or maybe some of the more um, serious philosophical stuff like mm-hmm. um, Inside Llewellyn Davis. Um, I, I do think Fargo has everything in a Coen Brothers film. Yeah. Um, well, you know, <laughs> some people might think, think uh, for for better or worse. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's almost like um, what I thought about William H Macy's character was, and maybe kind of similar to the Big Lebowski is he seems like a guy that's watched a lot of movies where heists have taken place, and that if he just does this, that's how it'll go, and then he'll maybe get his money. But it, he's just a an <laughs> and the, 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 the kind of Twitter uh, thing they now, he's a normal man. Um, he's an innocent man, <laughs> and he thinks he can easily deal with this, but it just kind of spirals out of control for him. One thing the cones seem to get, and even from a lot of their earlier movies, is the cast is incredible. Like they get it the same in this: Steve Buscemi, um, Francis McDormand. Um, there's uh, Steve Buscemi's partner. I can't. Uh, I, I, kind of sidekicky guy, the psycho. I <laughs> can't remember his exact name, but it's something they always seem to get. Do you think that's because of the type of directors they are? Maybe they're great to work for. Maybe it's just the material is just so engaging for actors. I, I think it's that. I think the the way they write characters and the, the way you you know you, you hear about them, they don't they don't tend. They're not those very. You know, they're not like a David Fincher <laughs> type <laughs> of just who just like is so thorough in what he wants his actors to do. Mm-hmm. Like with the Coens, I think they're quite happy with you know to give direction. Um, you know, with with I think my favorite. You know, I mentioned the the burn after reading, um, but the extra textual stuff. Um, I think um, Gabriel Byrne asked the Coens whether what the significance of his hat was in Miller's Crossing. And I can't remember which way. It was either Joe or Ethan, and they replied, "Yes, the hat is significant." And then you walked away, <laughs> which I feel just like I feel like just that that sort of thing is like you you invest your own meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, in a way, viewers and fans can invest their own meaning in the films, but the actors invest their own meaning. That you know, they're given like the drafts of characters, which they then they fill in. And obviously, as you said earlier, like the scripts, the script writing is great. The dialogue's mm-hmm. terrific. And they do give room for the actors to make the characters their own. Yeah, um, this is why I think you see so many, um, you know, pers- like pers- personal best performances 
and I think you know, some of them, like I think Gabriel Byrne and Miller's crossing is his best. I've never seen him better. Yeah. Um. You know, there's there's a couple. You know, we can touch on a few of them a few of them later on. But yeah, yeah. I think I think that's I think that's as you say that's what it is. It's just that they are they give you have both the great dialogue but also the space to inhabit something in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. We'll talk about uh, Miller's Cross later on. Um. As a it's something that I've definitely noticed in the movies of theirs that I've seen, just the cast they get, the performances they get. It's almost like um, the discussion, again, talking about going back to the Lars von Trier episode with the cast that he gets for his movies, incredible as well. And it's just, he's maybe on a, a different kind of spectrum, the more kind of controversial spectrum uh, of that. But it's, I mean, they also seem to kind of re, I don't think rehires the correct word, but. Um, work with the same actors kind of repeatedly. Um, mm. Frances McDormand is in another one. In fact, she's in all three of these movies. Um, mm. And then uh, John Turturro. Um, it must it must be kind of... They can't be bad to work for if they keep getting the same people back. Like Lars von Trier maybe has a bit of controversy about him, but they certainly can't be... They can't be massive taskmasters, I don't think. No, no. And I think, um, yeah, the, the way they just... I, Keep bringing people back. Like, and George Clooney was uh, the big one after Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and he just yeah. he just kept he he just kept coming in for them as well. And he's 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 so he, again like I think his best stuff is with the Coens, um, something like Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Intolerable Cruelty, Hail Caesar. Mm-hmm. He's he's just he's just I think he's got those they like they just bring out the best and sort of like people's um, comedic chops to use that wanky phrase. I think it's the same with as I say. Like I didn't think Born After Reading isn't one of my favourites of theirs, but I think Brad Pitt is superb in it. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's like a really underrated comedic actor in a in a, in a way. Yeah. I think, um, and I think they just they just engineer this perfect character for him to play. Um, and yeah, I think it's just they they as I say, like they, it is something maybe a bit. There's a, there's a lot of freedom to do to maybe be a bit sillier to do a bit be a bit more ironic than yeah. uh, you know a lot of these big actors who might be asked to play a bit more sincere or um you know big blockbuster roles or heavyweight drama indie roles with the coins there is the scope to be um a bit aloof mm-hmm. going on like in the last part we'll talk about fargo um i think it's quite it, well it's it's an iconic scene it's a really well-known scene um and it's kind of how the the movie wraps up with really dark humour. It's the wood chipper scene where Steve Buscemi's partner has essentially murdered him with an axe. Things have all went to shit as they have done in this movie. And Francis McDormand turns him turns up to find him struggling to stick his leg through the last bit of the wood chipper. Um that kind of balance of level levity and dark humour is is really well done in that moment. How did you find that? Yeah, that I love it. And I think my, my I think it is just as I say, like it is just like all the, the the slapstick stuff throughout. You know, I think it's only I think it's only a couple of scenes earlier where the um um her constable or like her deputy was chatting with a local, and it's mm-hmm. just the most like inane conversation Aye. you've ever heard. It's just funny, just them talking about the weather and whether it's going to snow, and then you know a couple of minutes later, a guy's leg is getting chucked <laughs> in the wood chipper, Aye. and then. But I think my favorite scene. One of my favorite scenes in the Coens, and my favorite scene in the film is the one right after it, um, when she's she's got Steve, she's got the guy um, in the back seat of her car, 
and she's just telling you know just saying like you know it's a lovely day outside and <laughs> you're just why, why do you have to go and do this what do you get out of it which i think it's just it's like it's really funny but really quite poignant at the mm-hmm. same time and france yeah. mcdormand delivers it superbly like she's mm-hmm. so her um deadpan delivery of it <laughs> is both really funny but really sort of profound at the same time yeah she has excellent uh she, she's excellent in all three of these movies i mean she's got a, a less um prominent part in Miller's Crossing but even then when she turns up she's really good so overall you're obviously a big fan of Fargo the first time I watched this I really enjoyed it see this second it's more than second or third watching I struggled with it a lot actually even for a short movie um, I just found it too for a 90 minute movie I found it quite slow and dragging that's that's fair. <laughs> yeah, and no, yeah, I think I think as like I do think there's um as I say I do think the meandering pacing isn't for isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, even more than some of the other ones is a lot of a, a mood piece. Like there is a lot of you know shots of snow. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of like lengthy shots of just like the isolated the sense of isolation and the sense of um. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I lapped that stuff up personally, but I can, I can see definitely see why folk might find that a bit um, grating after a while, especially if the you know the plot stuff isn't progressing particularly quickly. Aye, that's fair enough. I mean, it's just a, a personal thing. So, the second film you've picked is 1987's Raising Arizona. My name is H.I. McDonough. Call me high. Kind of brief synopsis for that. Um, yeah, essentially, you've got Holly Hunter and Nick Cage. <laughs> Nick Cage is like a deadbeat uh, criminal, just like the, the lowest stakes bank robber holds up uh, convenience stores. And Holly Hunter is a police officer, and it's a bit of sort of like a madcap rom com in the first like the first 10 15 minutes mm-hmm. where they just um. Yeah, they just sort of connect. Like they just fall fall in love with each other, and um, eventually, um, I think she leaves the uh, the police force, and yeah. they, try, they try and have a kid, and he tries to just uh, go clean with a work as a working man stiff, and eventually they really want to have a kid, but um, she she can't. 
so they they then they then elect to to steal a kid from these like the most like one of the Cohen's greatest characters, just this this nuts. Um, I can't remember what um, he sells, but it's it's just like a classic like bit, bit uh, like, it's like wind furniture or something Aye. businessman, and it's just it's it's like it's just really really funny. You have you can tell the that the Cohen's and um, Sam Raimi are really. Uh, good pals because there's an amazing Remy-esque um, uh, dolly shot where they just goes into the screaming uh, the screaming wife's mouth mm. when she just, her kids are missing and basically it's like all sorts of crazy escapades and shenanigans until as I, as I mentioned um, well earlier <laughs> um, but like the, the way they, they, they try and they set up like a really sentimental ending and then just undercut it brilliantly yeah. and it's just I just I think it's what I genuinely think it's one of the I find it one of the funniest films I've ever seen. I think it just makes me laugh just consistently. Incredible performances, really good gags. There's a lot, as I say, there is a load of irony there, but there's a lot of heart as well. And I think it's just like a perfect comedy, an absolutely perfect comedy. Yeah. There's a lot of physical comedy in it, I think, as well, isn't there? It's not just the there's visual gags as well, but like Nick Cage gets slapped about. You've got John Goodman and I can't remember the, the other actor's name. Um the breakout of prison where it's just covered in shit and mud mm-hmm. and just that kind of visual style of comedy, which is great in it. Um, one thing with it as well is it's really bright for mm-hmm. from what I've seen of Coen Brothers movies, like the colours that they use in it. It's quite a almost like a surreal style that they've went for with it, mm-hmm. especially in the, the kind of baby stealing scene where. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick Cage is is going in, and there just seems to be again that kind of slapstick. The baby's escaping and trying to decide which one to pick, and but again the colours and the kind of strange surrealism of it. Um, it was almost maybe not lynching, but there was a weirdness about it. I felt mm. no, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's as, as I think that adds to the the idea that it's almost like a cartoon, like mm-hmm. um, what we were saying with all the, the the amount of slapstick and the sense of unreality. I think is. It's, it's all very heightened, and it's it's something that the the is always that's it. the idea of unreality is something they tap into, in you know more dark territory like stuff like um, Barton Fink mm-hmm. or No Country for Old Men, where it's a bit <laughs> a bit heavier the, yeah. the stuff it's yeah. trying to touch on. But I think in this one it is just for like to make it that this is ba- you know basically a Looney Tunes cartoon turned into a into a real real life film, mm-hmm. um, and I, I yeah, it's, it's great. And I think the, the some of the as some of the most invented filmmaking, like as I say, with the um, the the track the the shot just zooming the I can't remember what the exact f- technical phrase they they call it beyond like the Remy zoom that he uses in Evil Dead and, and things yeah. like that. Is, um, yeah, he used the it, excellent just in the recent uh, Doctor Strange with the the scene with and. Spoilers if you've seen Doctor Strange, but um, the scene with Wanda and oh, Professor yeah. X, where he zooms into both of them before going into kind of their battle in the mind sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, it's it's just a kind of classic Raimi shot, and yeah, it's it. What it really reminded me of is like um, Black Hole Sun, the video, yeah. the Soundgarden music video. There's just this uh, kind of suburban America style uh, kind of feel to it as well. And Black Hole Sun's one of the creepiest, scariest <laughs> music videos I think you'll see. But this is definitely a lot warmer than that, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> quite by uh, quite a bit. Mm. Um, but I, I think I think was one of my favourite things to look at is just sort of looking back on the 
almost what thirty five years. It's been uh-huh. as close to, as a, a pro, well, yeah, a, just about thirty five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like looking at it in terms of the young Nick Cage, yeah, and the type of the, what he was like back then. And obviously, I don't know if some people have seen the unbearable uh, weight of massive talent. Where right. um, it's not a, a spoiler because he comes in really early, but there's a there's like a early 90s Nick Cage that's like a ghost to current Nick Cage and he's oh, telling God. me you're still a star and he, why don't you do big big movies anymore and things like that and mm. it's, it's it's quite funny but it's always like this is almost before that as well this is when he was just com- he was just coming out there was like Moonstruck had just come out and he was he's a very different type of actor to what he was in the 90s when he became like the big star who you know he became people either love him or thought he was rubbish or a self parody or whatever before you know the guys doing films like Pig and Mandy, no, yeah. <laughs> the more um, contemplative stuff. But it just it is absolutely it really sort of confirms that he is just a brilliant comedic actor. Like you can say there's so much about everything else, but I just thought his his line deliveries were amazing. Mm-hmm. The, his body language is great, and just his way that he delivered the as you say like the slapstick physical gags are just superb. Like he just fulfills like the cartoon idea that the the Coens were going for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the scene where he's um, he's fighting the bounty hunter Shaw, and he pulls his kind of pulls his his uh, t shirt up, rips his t shirt apart, and sees that like, the Tweety Pie is it? No, Woody Woodpecker <laughs> tattoo, yeah. and it's just a kind of look to not to the camera, but to the uh, to the bounty hunter, and it's just yeah, perfect comic timing. He's a guy that is he's kind of the nineties was like his action mm. period, wasn't it? Like it's he had well, I think. Gone in sixty seconds with maybe ninety nine, possibly two thousand, but it's certainly that area. And you'd con air and face off and the like, and then he fell away and had these kind of money troubles, and then came back and started doing everything, like anything that was thrown at him, knowing and um, which I really hate. Um, don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen knowing? No, it's bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, kind of basically any script that was put in front of him because he just needed to make money and now he's going through a bit again a bit more of a renaissance where he is still picking up pretty much everything but it seems to be what he's picking is kind of if certainly not all gold a lot better than what he had been like as you're saying there was Mandy um, Pig was just, how he never got put up for an Oscar for Pig I don't know like the, against some of the, the the candidates last year or this year sorry um, and even uh Willy's Wonderland, which so it's basically I don't know if you know the premise for it. It's um, Nick Cage turns up and there's this kind of like Chuck E. Cheese style place where there's animatronics and that play music. Oh, that and one, right? Yeah, yeah, another one. Yeah, <laughs> it's very much like I don't know if you like the Banana Splits released a horror movie last year or the year before, mm. where it's like the animatronic animals become possessed. It's essentially the same thing. Nick Cage does not say one word in the whole movie. <laughs> like it's incredible he get paid and he just turns up and he doesn't have one line in it but it's all kind of back to that physical comedy with a bit of the violence and kind of horror style of it and that kind of goes back to this type of movie like Raising Arizona where he does have the timing doesn't need to doesn't need to say anything he's just kind of gets everything spot on with it yeah I think his performance is great um, it actually took me to seeing the IMDB cast list to realise that was Holly Hunter like mm. From the last time I think I seen her was Batman versus Superman, and she doesn't mm-hmm. look. She looks completely different. Obviously, sometimes you'll see like an older actor or actress, and I just thought, oh God, I didn't even recognise her there. But she's great in it as well. She's fantastic. The whole cast there. Yeah, I think Holly Hunter's brilliant in everything mm-hmm. as well. Like, she's one of those that she just 
yeah, she just pulls out. <laughs> she's just so charismatic. Yeah. But it, it's like it's, it's so different to maybe some of her later roles where she is, you know, like the incredibly intelligent, sophisticated woman. Mm-hmm. Um why whereas you know, and and this one she just gets to do the slapstick similar to Nick Cage. And yeah. they just have great they have really good chemistry together. I think they just they just play off together really well. Aye. Um that's again one of the points I was going to ask about is just all the characters are over the top. Like Nick Cage is this attempted rehabilitated um, prisoner and then you have John Goodman and his kind of partner in crime where they like they've there's a point where they've stolen the baby off of Nick Cage and Holly Hunter and they just keep leaving it in different places and then turning and screaming at the camera and just a whole lot of flair about them there's um, the the furniture salesman whose baby gets uh, kidnapped and he's just again it, like he's, he's he's putting out a TV, um, he's getting interviewed in the news, and but at the end of it, he's just like, but remember, we've got a fifty percent sale on <laughs> while he's trying to appeal for his baby to get brought back to him, um, and then to I think I don't know if he's my favourite character, but certainly a lot of laughs was Shaw the the bounty hunter. I thought he was great in it. He's just, I mean, he's, it, there's just a kind of presence to him, and he's just um, he's barely on screen. He drives past things and they just explode. Is it's like the the caricature of a kind of action movie badass kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's great, and just love the little like tattoos, like "Mama never loved me" and stuff like that. It's the little um the little baby shoes he's got around his um his, I think he's on his motorcycle yeah. or something, and he's just yeah, as I say, like he just chucks a grenade to blow up a rabbit just because because <laughs> why? It's, yeah, <laughs> it's great, and I love the um. Like the um the cup the, the couple friends they have as well, but like Francis McDormand is brilliant, and um you can just tell like that how it, they're just so brilliantly dislikable. You like you mm. hate them so much, like this all like the uh the you know the four one up mischief and everything like that. The, the sort of thing you'd associate with that um you'd you'd associate with maybe you know like suburban America, just like the different families trying to. Or one up with each other, whether it's family, job, car, or whatever. Yeah, and it's just they're trying to do it for like sort of like trailer trash American as well, and it's just it's just brilliant. It's just so funny. It's basically the way like um, Holly Hunter just falls for it, and then Nick Cage becomes uncomfortable with it, and everything. Mm. Just the, the, that, those scenes are so good. They're so well played. Yeah, um, that guy is he in Friends? I'm sure he is, isn't he? Does he play yes, Chandler's yeah. boss in Friends that calls him Bing and pats him in the ass? Yeah, I think that's him. <laughs> I'm sure it's him. Yeah, uh, he was great in it. Like when Nick Cage just beats the shit out of him, then he turns up later on with like the the neck brace on, and then once the kind of movie's wrapping up, he's trying to explain that it's going to be. He's trying to explain to the police officer about what's happened, but obviously they've handed the baby back, and he's just this. Yeah, he's just a dick, really. I think, as you said, he just wants to one up them. Thinks he's got something over them. He sacks, he fires him, doesn't he? Because I think uh, Nick Cage works for him as well. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Again, back to Frances McDormand, someone who's been in so many of their movies as well. She's great, even in a kind of small role. She's brilliant in everything as well. I think it's just a, maybe not amused for them, but she's just fantastic in everything. Yeah, I think I think with her as well. Like I think every, Meryl Streep understandably gets like you know the best actor around comments, but I, I think Frances McDormand is up there as well. Mm-hmm. 
even even if you're wearing not not to, you know probably a bit uh, archaic to just basically <laughs> contain it to just men and women yeah. uh, with the best actors. I think well, I think she's one of the best actors of the her generation like mm. period like easily. Yeah, like, every, every, as you say, like everything she can do everything as well. She can do literally anything. Give her a slapstick role. Give her more of like refined, witty comedy role. Mm-hmm. Intense drama. I didn't like three bill three billboards outside Epping, Missouri, but she's oh, still incre- she's incredible in that. I, I feel like she, yeah, she's brilliant, and obviously, you know, is married to one of the Coens. Is yeah, she just adds something to everything um, they're on. I didn't know she was married to one of them. I didn't realise that. Maybe that explains why she she was getting put in them. But obviously, um, did she get the Oscar for three billboards? Uh, I thought I she know, had. I know um, that was up for awards. But I can't remember if she actually got the Oscar for it, thinking about it yeah. off the top of my head. Um, I, I really like Three Billboards, but I think it is, it's held up by her. And again, another dickhead character like Sam Rockwell is really good in it, but he just plays a kind of racist police officer. But he is good in that role. Um, uh, yeah, I had a, a good bit of time for it. So overall then, Raising Arizona, as you're saying, one of your favourites. Um, I had a good time with this, as I said earlier on. Fargo maybe didn't hit right for me this time. But this was a first time watch for me, and I absolutely loved it. Like genuinely loved it. I was in the again tight ninety minutes, ninety minute movies. That's the way things need to go. They're, they're all getting <laughs> two and a half, three hours nowadays. But I absolutely loved it as a first timer. Moving on to your last movie, we're going for nineteen nineties Miller's Crossing. I'm just a glyphosate. I'm a nobody. It's a dream. Tell me a break to you. I can't die. The single most impressive movie of the year, a brilliant mixture of satire and seriousness, style and substance. Four stars, the energy of a cyclone, a whirlwind of sex, treachery and intrigue. Not since The Godfather has there been a portrait of gangsterism as powerful as this audacious, electrifying masterpiece. One of the most marvelously written movies of the year, Miller's Crossing is a true original. Finney, Gabriel Byrne, Marsha Gay Harden, John Turturro. Look at your heart. I'm praying to you. Look at your heart. He's still alive. You expect me to believe you? I see you all over town. Alive and no heart. From Joel and Ethan Cohen. Nothing is what it seems at Miller's Crossing. What's your kind of breakdown of this one? I think this probably is my favourite Cohen Brothers film. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love how how clean it is mm-hmm. like I, I got to the stage like I think it was the first it's one of 
I remember when I uh, watched it for the first time. I must have been seventeen or something. Okay, and I, you know, like when you're when you're a teenager, you come up with really stupid ideas, like really self-absorbed, self-indulgent ideas. And I was like, I'm going to try write a stage play adapted to Miller's Crossing. <laughs> and I feel like I was watching it back now. I was like, there's no fucking way you can make this a stage play. You're out of mind. Never mind the fact that you're far too young, inexperienced, and rubbish, <laughs> and un- un- too untalented to do it well. Um, but I think it was just, it's because I, I just love the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I think the dialogue's so snappy. It's really inventive, but it tells you everything you need to know without being heavy handed. It's really poetic in places. It's incredibly funny. Like it has. It has real moments of slapstick, like in Raising Arizona, the bit where he, um, <laughs> where Gabriel um, Gabriel Byrne uh, smacks like there's a big hulking giant guy who's supposed to beat him up, and I think he smacks him with a chair, and he goes, "Jesus, Tom!" <laughs> and, then just, and then he just like goes out the room, and, just, and some brilliant, brilliant characters. Um, John Turturro's superb in it. Yeah. It's just like the most loathsome little character, and. It just as as like a film noir works as well. There's a little sense of everything yeah. being played off, and Gabriel Burns outstanding, and I think it has a real sort of darkness and sadness to it as well. You're not even sure why it's necessarily sad, other than maybe just Gabriel Burns just looks on you know incapable of finding comfort or contentedness because he walks away f- walks away from everything. Uh, then spoiler, yeah. um, but. I, I I just love it. It's, it's probably you know I mentioned my my top ten earlier. And I think this would definitely be uh, the the Coen Brothers film that would be in that. Yeah, um, this is again a first watch for me, and I would certainly put it top two Coens for me. Now I can be a bit hit or miss with Coen movies. I said earlier on, um, but it, before this, it was No Country for Old Men, and I think this maybe just surpasses it. Because there's a wee bit more kind of lightheartedness to it. Because I was going to ask if you maybe thought this. I'll, I'll just give a, a kind of brief synopsis of it. Basically, um, Gabriel Byrne plays Tom, who works for Albert Finney's Leo. It's kind of a crime. He's the uh, Irish American kind of crime boss. Yeah. Um, and he's facing off against John Polito's Johnny Casper, who's the Italian American crime boss. And Gabriel Byrne's essentially working his way through the movie almost playing both sides and you don't really know what side he's on and I don't think you ever really it's, it's kind of left open I felt at the end anyway it, it, it makes a, a it makes a decision to go with Leo essentially but one of the things I was going to ask was what was his end game in it because he didn't seem to really have a, like a goal in it coming at this from a first time viewer when I was watching it I was sitting going well he's looking to manoeuvre into the position of power he's looking to essentially maybe take over. It's New York it's setting, isn't it? Yeah. The whole of New York as the, the maybe the main crime boss, but he doesn't really have that as his goal. It just seems to be he wants to kinda of cause a bit of chaos and then give up, stop. <laughs> like Well I, I, I read it as like well I think that the big thing in the end was like the classic noir sense of fatalism. Just mm-hmm. like, oh, there's nothing for me here anymore. Like he his love is he's not He's not interested in love interest anymore. I think I read it as his final act of loyalty to Leo. Okay. Uh, like if he was burned by Leo, but he's not going to let him die. He's not going to let his empire crumble. Um, so I just read it as he's going to do this one more thing, but he, because he feels betrayed by Leo, feels betrayed, um, 
by by the love interest in the love triangle as well. Yeah. Then he just he just feels like this one act of um, quality, like one act of compassion and friendship, and then that's him done, and he's moving on uh, to what we don't know makes it a uh, quite quite fun. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's yeah, I really like. Yeah, I just think it's perfectly told as well. There's nothing. Mm. Not, when you look at it, it's, it's quite. A, it seems quite convoluted story, but every scene, every line of dialogue has its purpose, and yeah. it all contributes to the greater whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely. Um, it's the longest out of the three we've discussed today, um, an hour and fifty-five minutes. But there wasn't an ounce of fat on it at all. Every, every, as you said, every scene, every scene is just fantastically shot, as you would expect with the cones. Every performance is superb. Um, I think it was um, John. Oh, I forgot his name now. John Pilotti. Polito, sorry. I think he was my favourite playing um, Johnny Casper. Just yeah. his his ability to switch from zero to a hundred, like kind of mundane to psycho with a, a, a drop of a hat. He was fantastic in it. Um, Marcia Gay Harden, who's yeah the love interest. Mm. She she has a bit of a lesser role, but uh, mm. like that kind of noir role, as you're saying, the 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 doll sort of thing. Um, from those styles of movies, yeah, femme fatale, femme fatale, yeah, yeah that's a, a better word. Um, just everything about it, yeah, it was not perfect. I absolutely loved it. It probably is slightly above No Country for Old Men. Thinking about it more because I got a bit annoyed at the end in No Country for Old Men, but um, yeah, it was just a perfect movie. I think is probably the best way to describe it. I don't think there's anything that you could really criticize about it. Yeah, I, I think the. Um, the other two things I'd show is the Barry Sonnenfeld's cinematography because mm-hmm. this is a gorgeous film. Like yeah. it's the, this, the, from the the interior design, which I know wasn't um, Sonnenfeld specifically, but just more broadly about the the set design, but also the, the photography set in like the autumnal woods, mm-hmm. which is just such a obviously they used it for the the, the posters as its most definitive imagery. But yeah, the way the way they use returning to the woods as a as a like motif throughout the film, um, is is brilliant as well. And the other thing I I, I love about it is Carter Burwell's score, mm-hmm. um, which <laughs> hence the my my choosing of it for the the song for the podcast. But yeah. um, I, it's just it's just beautiful. It's like haunting. It's it's maybe a bit. It's almost it sounds like it's like the the score for it would what we'd expect from like an Oscar bait drama, mm-hmm. just like a, like sort of an uplifting Oscar bait drama. But it just adds a certain level of almost uh, poetry to the film itself and i think it works like it it might sound like sentimental in isolation like a very pretty piece of music but i think you actually apply it to what is a quite a dark funny darkly funny (laughs) um film it just works and i'm not sure why i don't know whether it's just uh bias or what but i just think the the music suits that it's a bit jarring but it just suits it perfectly Mm mm-hmm Talking about the, the the cinematography and everything of the movie and like the way scenes are shot, I think for me the best scene, or certainly my favourite scene anyway, was the kind of attempted hit on Leo, mm. where it's just it's got the, the the focus of him on the bed and the the footsteps of the, the hitman coming up to his door, and then just the way that whole action set piece plays out, it's certainly a strength of the cones, which is maybe. Bit of a an obvious thing to say, but they really know how to do an action set piece, don't they? Yeah, uh, they they really do, and I think the way I think I think No Country for Men is one of the best examples for, for that mm-hmm. um, for the way they do the set piece because they just I think I think the big thing they do so well is characters' perspectives in the action. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. is yeah. they're they're not 
overly focused and trying, you know, giving you every detail that you need to know. It's more about the tension of being claustrophobic with the characters. And I think that just, it works brilliantly in, you know, the, 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 some of the, the some, as you say, some of the individual shots they've got in that. Um, like the, I think there's one where you just see Leo just very calmly lie down and then roll under the bed. <laughs> and there's just something that tells you so much about his character and, and just in that, the, the, the decision and then you've got Danny Boy playing over it and it's, it's just so good like it, it is brilliant yeah. um, I think it's, it's one of yeah it's one of their best action scenes um, they've done yeah what you're saying about it being from just the character's perspective and not necessarily want to show you everything it's interesting that because you, you do see Leo full on but until the hitmen come in the room I don't think you ever see their faces you only see their feet and yeah. the walking yeah. and then that scene where yeah Leo just I said he puts his slippers on he quietly rolls under the bed, waits for them to come in. It straight away came to mind for me was in Kill Bill, the anime mm-hmm. uh, sequence of telling uh, Lucy Liu's character's backstory. Yeah. And she hides under the bed, shoots someone through the shin, and then he looks up and gets shot in the head. I wonder if Tarantino, you know, Tarantino's the, the ultimate in maybe not say copying, but uh, paying homage to something. Yeah. It was so kind of shot, almost shot for shot like that. And I just thought it was, yeah, brilliant scenes. And then going back to the kind of slight comedy of it, I think he chases after the, the other kind of the getaway drivers in the car. And I think there's another couple. He shoots the car and the car kind of blows up as well. Yeah. Like it seems, it seemed a bit excessive, but good in, in a good way. I don't mean like excessive bad, but again, that kind of not slapstick, but certainly a bit of levity added to it. I think it was also like, um, the co- like the Miller's Crossing is very much a homage to like nineteen thirties gangster films as mm-hmm. well, um, and you know the, the Coen's been very vocal about that, and I think you know that's the kind of thing that I think that's you know there is that degree of cartoonishness as you say to it. It's, n- it's not trying to be a realistic film at any point, no. but is that, that that when you you know that's the kind of thing that would happen in a you know a, the original Scarface or something like that, like yeah. where they just blows up. Um, I think that's yeah. I think that's as you say, and the thing is, he's doing it in his robe and slippers as well. Like he's just doing this incredibly, this act of incredibly competent violence. Mm. Well, he's just, he's like just he look like well, you know, he a couple, like half an hour later, he's just smoking a cigar lying on his bed. Yeah, it's um thinking about uh, going back to the characters again, and I forgot to mention one kind of cameo almost a Steve Buscemi. That goes into more of the kind of strange characters that the Coens have. I can't remember the character, mm. the, his exact name in it, but he's got a, like a very um, unnatural way of talking, a very mm. kind of spiky way of talking, almost mm. again comedic. I think you see him once and then you maybe hear him again on the phone. Yeah, I and think then, he's Mink. I think he's. Mink, um, yeah. I think he's John Turturro's boyfriend. All oh, right, okay. Um, is that the way that they've they've done it? Mm. Um, which I think works well. Nice. <laughs> yeah, but as, as you say, like is. I think that's what I love about that everyone has, even though it's all the same sort of like um, like spiky 1930s rat-a-tat dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, they, everyone has their own personality within that. They're not just noir archetypes. Well, they are, but they have like personalities mm-hmm. put on that which colours them in a bit. Yeah. And Gabriel Byrne, anytime there's like a raid or something like that, he just casually walks out and starts speaking yeah. to the police commissioner. He's like, I don't know anything. I'm just a commissioner. This is <laughs> great, yeah. Um so we've said we spoke about kind of Tom's Endgame. It kind of his last major act is the only real violence. Well, 
the only murder you see him commit in the movie, which is John Turturro. For, in your own mind, why did you think he kind of held off on that? Like, or the, maybe even why the Coens held off and shown him being having that level of violence in him? Is it maybe to make him more sympathetic, or because you don't see him, but he has fights, he has battles with people, but he just murders him kind of in cold blood after after um, John Turturro's character has essentially done what he wanted him to do. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to say. I think that's what part of the reason I love the film is that sense of ambiguity, as you mm-hmm. mentioned earlier. We don't really know what. Like I have, I have my theory, but we don't know for certain what um, Tom's, what Gabriel Burns' character, what his intentions are, what his end end game is. At the same time, I don't know. It could be because he's he's looking at um, what what Bernie's doing mm-hmm. and thinking like I can really use this guy to achieve my end goal here, mm-hmm. or it could, as you say, just be him genuinely being sympathetic and struggling. It could be because he sincerely loves Marcia Gay Harden's. Uh, character and doesn't yeah. want to hurt her. Yeah. There could be a bit of all three. Um, I think it's just, it's just brilliantly played because he is so deadpan. Mm. But I think there's he. I think the way he plays it, he he is telling so much with it, with saying so little. Yeah. Um, yeah. The way is is like his body like because he's, he never does anything. There's no emotion to him. Like he's very he's very funny and and deadpan, but he really he doesn't like raise a eyebrow or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's yeah it's <laughs> it's it's he's just a, he's a brilliant performance. Mm-hmm. I, 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 just, I just love that sense of ambiguity. You can read anything into it you want. Yeah, yeah. There's no way. There's no even like a um, like a wink or a, a like a known wink or anything with him. That is yeah. all just played absolutely straight as an arrow. Um, coming on to the last part of talking about Miller's Crossing, um, but just a kind of wee crossover with a couple of um, other Cohen movies. There is elements of comedy in this. But it is probably more straight than a lot of other stuff, apart from maybe No Country for Old Men. Again, going by what I've seen, I've not seen all, all the Coen Brothers movies. Um, how do you weigh their kind of more straight-laced stuff up against their maybe kind of action-y comedies that they do? I mean, I'm probably not, not the right person to say this because I love all of it. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, I love, I love, I love like, No Country for Old Men or Inside Llewellyn Davis. I think, they're, they're, they're all, I think they've never made... A, a movie that doesn't have a, a, a you know a, a through line of some comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, even No Country for Old Men, there's quite a lot of dark comedy in there. But and I think they do have something like Raising Arizona or Hudsucker Proxy or even No Brother Where Thou, which are just pure slapstick, just like yeah. bonkers. Um, but I, I think the stuff that I really, the stuff I, I sort of think about a lot is maybe the ones that are intended to be comedy but are almost like existential comedies, something like Barton Fink or A Serious Man. Mm-hmm. Um, even, well, probably the best is, is um, Inside Llewellyn and Davis. Um, I think that was a really, really, I think that's, there are times when I think, I'd say like, I, I don't want to make it over, over the top. So I'd say it's top, top five Coens. And I think it's one of my favorite films of the 2010s. Cool. Um, it's, I think it's just an incredible, incredible film that I just, every time I rewatch it, I find something new. Mm-hmm. I think that's maybe something like a serious man. I think it's probably a bit too weird for a lot of people's tastes, but mm. I think that's. I felt that that's like the the apex of what they've been trying to say. Okay. Um, because it, the, the the guy is just like a bit of a a bit of a loser, a bit of an exasperated professor, and his life just unravels, and he can't understand why. And it does a lot. Deals a lot with um, Judaism and just religion more broadly, and just this idea of 
oh, why the fuck is my life going to shit? I don't, I don't feel I've deserved this. As like, I may be, you know, well, he's not, he, he doesn't have the self-awareness to realise he's, he's been selfish and um, insincere and a bit of a dickhead, but should, is that really enough to have your life <laughs> collapse? Yeah. And it's yeah. incredible, like, it's very, very darkly funny, but I think that's almost like the, you know, the thematic, it might not be the best film. I don't think it's in, in my top 10 favourite Coen Brothers films, but I think that's probably the most of what they're, they're trying to say and i think they do it really successfully but mm. at the same time it's, it's probably it's not i think it's like too weird and too maybe um i'm trying to think of the, the right phrase but i think they will stick with too weird to be a film that i can like love in the same way i do the others mm-hmm. um but i think they've just got they've got a much broader range than people give them credit for um a lot of the time like they're never they're never going to make a completely serious film mm. like i know that like even you know um was it was it Joel who made the recent Macbeth adaptation? And there's still even some like hints of comedy in that because mm-hmm. they just physically can, they physically need some comedy in one of their films. Yeah. Um. And and I, you know they're never going to do a prestige drama or something like that. But I think within their own makeup, they have a they are, they are quite a broad diversity. But then again, that could just be because I'm incredibly biased <laughs> about them. <laughs> oh, but that's fine. Um. Could you see them ever going into, and this is maybe just a be, me being a bit of an MCU head, and I don't necessarily mean MCU, could you ever see them getting involved franchise-wise if they maybe just fancy a change? Like, I think looking at what Taika Waititi done with things like Thor and the new mm. Thor trailer that was out um, recently, um, it looks like he's going to make that even a wee bit more into his kind of tastes. And Sam Raimi certainly did a, a good bit of Doctor Strange was... Certainly, the the most violent MCU movie and the most with horror elements. Could you see them get involved in any sort of franchise style thing? Even if you didn't want them to, could you see it? I'm not sure. Like the, I've said, I've said so and so would never before, and then obviously Ethan Pock said he would never would, and then yeah. he did Midnight. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I'd never said never, but I just seen. I think they're just really settled in what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think maybe. Maybe they could do like an adaptation of something, yeah. Um, would, you know, something a bit more recent than uh, Macbeth, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, I, I wouldn't like, even if the vast, vast majority of their stuff is uh, is original screenplays. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know, I just don't know whether they'd ever. I mean, I'd, I'd fucking love them to do a Star Wars, I think that'd be brilliant, mm. I think that could be superb. Um, but I just, I just don't know whether it'd be something they'd ever be interested in. But mm. I do, I do, I would like part of me would love to see what they could do with that material in the same way, even though, you know, like, even though he rubbishes them, I would love to see what a Scorsese MCU film would look like. <laughs> just, just stylistically. I think yeah. it'd be, I'd be absolutely fascinated to see how he'd, he'd deal with it. Mm-hmm. I think um, it would always be interesting to see, cause you know, you always hear about the MCU. It has its kind of rigidity and people aren't allowed to put too much of their own flavor in it. But I think later on, and if they get the right directors, they're kind of willing to. Like maybe I, I think I'd like to see the Coens maybe doing like um, a comic series, American Vampire, um, which is a graphic novel series. It's kind of violent and dark and funny. I'd like to see them try a hand at a horror movie, like a and mm. maybe going again. You can always have the elements of comedy in it, but maybe something like fully into the the supernatural horror style or something. I think could be quite interesting seeing them doing. I, th- I think yeah, I'd love to see them. I I think they'd be perfect to do maybe like a like a southern gothic ghost mm. story, yeah. something like that. 
Yeah, I think it's something that they could really play to their strengths, especially as you know they love that um, area of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they love the, the the south, so I think I think be fascinated with it. And I think the mat as well as like you know that type of horror is like ripe for slapstick, and it's yeah. also ripe for that 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 version of um, you know the irony of history, the irony of. Um, fatalism and everything that's like ripe for that kind of thing as well so I think I think there's definitely like scope for it whether or not they'd ever do it I don't know mm-hmm. they seem to just be you know that would do whatever their heart takes them so I think it'd be, it'd be quite interesting but like you know it's like, like it's the same thing like I don't think anyone's ever saw but I certainly didn't see the director of the Northman oh Robert Eggers <laughs> yeah I never saw him doing that you know very brutal Viking saga mm-hmm. um, after the lighthouse um, and and the witch. So like, who who knows what's gonna who knows? And I never saw Sam Raimi returning to. But maybe that was a, it's a bit different because he'll, he's a massive massive uh, comic books and superhero fan. Yeah. But I never saw him returning to that world. But yeah, that'll be interesting. I think we um I heard someone mention today that the Sam Raimi thing is he's been trying to get movies made for nine years and no one seems to want to kind of back him. Because yeah. uh, was the last one was Oz the Great and the Powerful before Doctor yeah. Strange and. I th- Wonder if he's there was the the podcast I was listening to was wondering if he's just basically trying to say everyone look I'm still here I've made an MCU movie now come and give me things or let me get my ideas on the screen so there's maybe something about that with him but um, correct me if I'm wrong and I probably am wrong here is there a set and I'm, I can't remember if this is Buster Scruggs or Inside Number Nine is there a section where there's pretty much the whole thing plays out in a carriage and they're going towards a hotel of some sort that kind of feels a bit horrory? I think it might be inside number nine now that I've said it. Yeah, that's it's a, it's more inside number nine. <laughs> but just because it's the same kind of, I'm pretty sure it's set in the States and it's the same era as kind of Buster Scruggs takes place. And I can't remember now. It's probably inside number nine now that I've said it, but I, um, that felt like something. But as you're saying, like an American... Uh, gothic style, maybe a ghost tale, or uh, like I said, that American vampire certainly maybe something they could look into. Um, definitely be interesting, but as you're saying, they're kind of maybe not set in their ways, but they certainly know what they like to make and they get made what they want to make quite a lot of the time, it seems. So they don't never necessarily that need that Raimi maybe had to get back into the MCU the way he did. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a funny one. I don't know whether it's because they have such uh, middle brow appeal at this mm-hmm. at this stage of their careers that you know most even you don't have to be a massive cinema fan to recognize the Coen brothers and because they've had quite a lot of maybe academy award success yeah um, it's especially after fargo then maybe it's a bit different where they they normally do box they never very well they never really do extending box office but they don't really tend to you know uh, do shit either yeah I think they're at that stage where they've got that combination where their name means something. It does okay box office. They're almost always critically um, well re- responded, and yeah. So I think it's some. I think Raimi, because he is he is so incredibly weird, and maybe yeah. it's about in a less mainstream way, <laughs> um, in, a, in a lot of sense. Even though they, they have a lot of similarity, similarities, and a lot of. Um, places that overlap specifically in their weird camera techniques, their love of slapstick, etc. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a bit of an odd one. I also think it's such a shame with Remy as well because he's 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 brilliant. Like he's superb. Even even his worst films have something to look, even like Oz. It's a, a disaster in some areas, but there's a lot of interesting visual stuff in that, and it mm-hmm. has like a, a bit of like 
awareness to fantasy that you know fantasy could be like the most homogenous genre on the planet so at least it, it tries to do something a bit weirder with it which i'd sort of appreciate and i, I think he's like he's, he's maybe not one of my favorite film writers but i just i just there's i always find something to enjoy and i think drag drag mattel is one of the best horrors this century as well i think it's just a perfect film mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's interesting as you're saying that it, it's i think Remy Remy's style maybe lends a bit more to the comic book movies that we get nowadays mm. as well, as you're saying. Aye. So that's the three movies. Um, just a final kind of quick question to wrap up um, before we go on to your outro song. Um, are these your top three cones? Are these your the ones you find kind of maybe the most interesting to discuss? I, I wouldn't say they're my top. Th- I think they're the th- three most interesting to discuss mm-hmm. um, because I think well, I think Miller's Crossing is my my favourite, I'd say Fargo is probably the most typical Coen's film yeah. in a lot in a way. And I just think Raisins Arizona's a blast. <laughs> I just think it's just it's so much fun. Uh, I love it. But I think if I was going to do a prop, you know, maybe a top five, I think Big Lebowski is probably up there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on in, I was doing a pub quiz um, last two weekends ago um, and it had, you know that thing that pubs do where they show a film on the background but it's on mute <laughs> yeah. and I, I could just I could just like I could just because I've seen it like 20 times I could just lib read what they're saying and just piss myself <laughs> while my team was losing the pub quiz yeah. and I think that would be up there and I think Inside Llewellyn Davis and No Country for Old Men would probably be the other three those would be the other three would maybe breach my top five with I don't know yeah, I don't. I just put it as a top six. I think those <laughs> those six would probably be the the ones that are that, um, that are up there. But even like, yeah, as I say, there's maybe like seventy five percent of them. I I probably count as five star like films. I just I just love them so much. Even even stuff like people don't like that much, like Intolerable Cruelty or Hudsucker Proxy. I just love to pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I sort of gone on, I, there is so much to discuss in each of them, and I think everyone does. You know, there's a reason why. AV Club have a list of the fifty best Cohen supporting characters because that's that's the thing you love about them. There's like six or seven in each film that just have a sense of personality, even if they only have like two lines of dialogue and they're only in one scene. Yeah. Um, plus, it spawned two white Russian bars. Is it three now? No, oh, the the one in the south side gets shot. Lebowski's. Um, so we've got one in the West End. I think there's one in Edinburgh. Isn't there as well? I'm sure, there's two. Yeah. Yeah. And, Nice, Buckfast White Russian. What else could you want? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, kind of just to wrap up, if putting you in the spot, maybe if someone new was to come up to you, what would you say? Three movies just to kind of get a feel for the cones. Not necessarily your favourites. Would it be these three, or would it be maybe something else? I think definitely Fargo. Mm. I'd say. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, pr- I probably would say Big Lebowski because I think that's the big one. It is like that's probably their biggest cultural touchstone. I think. Yeah. Um, and it is is it almost like maybe one of their least weird. I know there's there's some fucking trippy stuff in it. <laughs> um, like the the bully, like the the was it that acid trip? Yeah. But Jeff, um, Jeff Bridges is incredible in. <laughs> um, but I think it's one of the maybe the more their most accessible films. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think maybe. Either no country for men to show that sort of darker side, or raising Arizona as so very two very very different films. Yeah, but I think I think I think definitely Fargo, Big Lebowski, and then either no country or 
or uh, the Raising Arizona, I don't know. Which is a bit weird. I know it's a bit weird because I say like Miller's Crossing is my favourite of theirs, and it is it's it's, made, it's not overly weird. But I, I feel like those ones is where are probably they get your hooks in you maybe, and then you, mm-hmm. you can probably judge whether the cones are going to be for you from those films. Yeah, and then I think like Miller's Crossing is one you can do is it your fourth or fifth watch, and then say okay, yeah, <laughs> these guys are are gods. Yeah. <laughs> I think you would Miller's Crossing because it certainly plays a lot straighter than a lot of them. Mm. If you were to say to someone, oh, go and watch Miller's Crossing, and if they didn't have a clue who the cones were, and yeah. then you randomly went on to Burn After Reading, you would be like, yeah. hold on, this is a not what I thought it was going to be. Like, There's maybe a kind of different sense of expectation if you suggested. But yeah, those three are great. Yeah, I mean, I love The Big Lebowski as well. Um, I think everyone that watches it loves the Big Lebowski. They certainly yeah. should anyway. As I said, Fargo I was a wee bit less on, but um, and Raising Arizona, No Country for Old Men. Yeah, I think with that, those two, as you're saying, it's either or, but it's either or of the scale kind of for them, isn't it? Yeah. It's just one of those, um, either end of the spectrum, it gives a good idea how they are. Brilliant. Um, so that kind of wraps us up for discussing the Coen brothers. Um, Kieran, just before we go on to the last part, where can people find you? Um, well, I'm on uh, Twitter as <laughs> at uh, no, not that Devlin, um, which is a, um, well, it's a bit of a it's a story when the rapper Devlin was a thing, and someone said, "Oh, oh, you mean rap Devlin like the rapper?" It's it. I haven't changed it since about 2013, <laughs> so um, I probably should get it changed now that I technically have to use it for work and stuff. Um, but I, I'm on there. I don't really use it for anything other than work anymore because the world's really depressing. So I try not to go into it much anymore. Um, but yeah, that's what the that's where I can find me. Cool. Um, thanks very much for joining me on this this one night recording. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's been great, as I said. The cones maybe not a blind spot for me, but they're certainly the, the two of the three that we discussed tonight. I'd never seen in a enjoyed both of them immensely um so for the last part just to play us out what have you chosen as the song to play us out on or the piece of music uh well i sort of telegraphed it earlier well firstly thanks for having me on <laughs> i've really enjoyed it really good conversation um but yeah the, the piece of music i chose was um carter burwell's intro to miller's crossing mm-hmm. because well i thought it'd be it, it would be relevant to have it with the, the three films discussed, but also it's one of my favourite pieces of film score ever. So, yeah, that would be a good... Magic. Kieran Devlin, thanks very much. And here is the intro music to Mills Crossing. Cheers.